for those of you that might be just kind of joining us in this sermon, uh, most of it so far has been, as I said at the beginning, a greeting. Paul greets this church, and recall that Paul has never been to the city of Colossae. Rather, he's been uh, undergoing this ministry in his own big towns. And in one of those, uh, during one of those journeys, a young man by the name of Epaphras heard the gospel and got born again. Epaphras went back to his hometown of Colossae and started talking about Jesus to his friends. And little by little, over time, this church was born in Colossae. And so Paul, who has never been to Colossae before, now writes a letter to that church in order to instruct them about the way of Jesus so that they could continue in that way. It's incredible. Now, what's interesting about the passage we're about to sit on is that if I were to write the book of Colossians to to, to a city about following Jesus, I probably would have done similarly to what Paul said. I would greet people like, oh, thank God for you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, we've heard of your faith and your love for all the saints. I probably, I could see how somebody would also continue in verse 9 to teach about grit and grace, like what we talked about last week, uh, last week. I'd speak about the gospel and grit and grace, but I, I probably, my normal inclination after that, that, that first greeting would then be to look at those people at Colossae or Reality Santa Barbara and say, you can do it, okay? To this fledgling church, this group of people that is wanting to follow Jesus, but they're facing a culture and a society and even their own inner demons that's making that hard. I, I would probably revert to what I've been taught my entire life. You can do it. Pat on the back. Just pull yourself up. It's going to be awesome. You're awesome. You're great. You're a great Christian. Just do this thing, all right? And so Paul completely flips the script. As soon as his initial greeting is over, what I half expect to be some kind of self-help, like a a splurge of, uh, of advice, he instead reverts his attention away from the Colossian church and from us to somebody else. And he, for lack of a better word, breaks off into song. It's almost like Paul can't go very long in any book that he writes without breaking into a hymn or a tangent or a breakaway run-on sentence about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And so he immediately goes into, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible for verse after verse after verse. What I half expect to be something about me, he then turns into something about God. Which is a script that perhaps our culture, our society, maybe even us individually, desperately need to hear. We need the script flipped on us. We live today in a a, a world, in a culture, in a society that has a very unhealthy degree of self-obsession. Have you noticed? On the degree of self-adulation, we are at the center of our own universes. Uh, This is so deeply entrenched in society that psychologists actually had to coin a new phrase in order to identify it. It's called the superiority illusion. Here's what the superiority illusion is. It is the belief that you are better than average in any particular metric, okay? I want you to think about that for a second. I'll give you some examples. Uh, 32 to 42% of software engineers think that they are in the top 5% of their field, okay? Just think about that math for a second. I'll give you a second. 
Here's another one. In a study uh, done by the University of Nebraska, 90% of students rated themselves as above average. 93% of motorists describe themselves as above average drivers. Anyone here be able to testify that's not true? In a study of 800,000 high school students, only 1% considered themselves below average in social skills. Okay? Now, you don't have to get too far into these stats to see that that is mathematically impossible. 90% of you cannot be above average, right? That's not how that works. But this is a superiority illusion. Without evidence, without experience, we just tend to believe, because that's the cultural water we drink, that we are probably better than everybody else, at least better than average. This has led to what uh, one psychologist, Gene Twenge, referred to as the narcissism epidemic. It gets worse. Not just that we believe we're above average without any evidence, but that we are actually extraordinary. The narcissism epidemic is the belief that we are extraordinary, even if you are not, right? Now, I'm not here talking about moms who actually are extraordinary and sometimes think that they're not. I'm talking about what Paul would say, to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. I'm talking about people that have no reason to believe that they might be exceptional, but just do because that's what they've been taught to believe about themselves. And the research and experience and history tells us that that type of thinking leads us to a sense of entitlement. Well, if I'm awesome, I deserve to be treated awesome. And that affects everything that we do. It affects our spirituality. It affects our relationships. It affects our rootedness in the city of Santa Barbara. It affects what we think of ourselves and what we think of others and what we think of others in our own lives. The problem is, we're not always as awesome as we think in everything that there is in life. Sometimes we're broken people. Sometimes we're not very good at certain things. Sometimes we're terrible at certain things and we need help. Sometimes we're not extraordinary. And we see that breakdown in culture and society. We see it, I think, on a big level. We see it in things like the housing crisis. We see it in the government bailouts of giant greedy corporations. We see it in this giant insurmountable mountain of student debt and on and on and on. Lots of variables in place in all of those things, but at the core of a lot of those things is a sense of entitlement. I deserve this because I'm extraordinary. Of course, if you were to bring it down to the individual personal felt level, we, we, we see this as well. Uh, whether you're on your phone looking through your newsfeed, watching other people's extraordinary lives, feeling like there's something missing in yours, what do you do? You don't admit, maybe I'm broken, and maybe they are too. No, you post a picture of your extraordinary lie, furthering the lie that it's all a lie. For others, it's the sense that we deserve more, but we have less, and it crushes us. For others, it leads to a breakdown in our spirits and souls. For others, it's disappointing at best and a feeling of emptiness at worst. When we encounter our lives, we see that they're not the way that we thought they would be. And if we were to appear, even just for a moment, honestly and authentically, we might see a sense of emptiness and hopelessness 
and disappointment. My question today, to start where we're going, is what if disappointment in ourselves is precisely what we need sometimes? What if a sense of our own emptiness and brokenness is exactly what we need? What if that is the cure for the breakdown that we're feeling, trying to, end, uh, trying to run this endless race of being better than we actually are? Maybe that's why Paul, as he's speaking to real people struggling with real things in a real city, trying to be a real church, stops for a moment before he even finishes the first chapter to drop a hymn that has nothing to do with us. Instead, he goes off and prays onto someone that isn't me, and he uses terms like preeminent. Christ is preeminent, a word that means surpassing all others. See, I think with Paul, Paul knew intuitively what he would say somewhere else to, uh, uh, in Athens to another group of people in Acts chapter 17, that we were made for something more eternal than what we ourselves can supply. Actually, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 through 28, he would say to a group of Athenians, God made from one man, he created from one person all the nations throughout the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall. And he determined their boundaries. And listen to this. After he goes on to say that God created everything and everyone that you see, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God. You hear that? The entire reason you exist is to seek after God who created you to exist and to perhaps feel your way towards him and to find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. One translation puts it, in him we find our being. We find the missing piece. I love that even though God created us uh, with the sole purpose of knowing him, he also put us all over the world to find him. Sounds like a divine scavenger hunt. Yesterday, because, uh, for, because of church and stuff like that, uh, I celebrated Mother's Day with Brianna and the kids yesterday. We made a whole day of it. And we all made gifts for her and wrote cards for her and wrapped presents. Uh, but we hid them in various places behind the house and forced her to find them with clues. It was a scavenger hunt. And I would dare say that more of the fun in Mother's Day, at least for us, maybe not for her, was in watching us uh, or in us watching mom have to find these presents. The presents were awesome as well. But part of our joy was completed by seeing her like pull out, like we hid these presents everywhere, like behind the toilet seat, like underneath the bed, in the grill outside, and just watching her like read these clues, opening stuff up, and then for her eyes to light up. And when her eyes lit up, our eyes lit up. It's almost like God is putting us all over the earth, in this case in Santa Barbara, attaching or depositing in you, as, as, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, eternity in your heart. In other words, an eternal capacity for something beyond what you can supply to yourself. And he leaves you there and he gives you clues in order to find himself. And yet I love that line that Paul says, and though he is not far from any one of us, like he's around the corner just waiting for you to find him. You were made for God. So it shouldn't be any surprise that when Paul opens up this book to a church that is 
really working through some things, really needing to survive, not just survive, but thrive. He takes a detour from talking about them or us too much, and he immediately puts his attention and ours back onto God. If God is that solution to that emptiness that some of us in this room feel, if he's the antidote to that disappointment, the question perhaps some of us are asking is how do we access this extraordinary but extraordinarily invisible God? That's what I think Paul interacts with in this hymn about Jesus. I want to give you two points from this, this passage. I'll give you the first point after I read the passage. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, one of the first things, uh, the first thing that Paul says is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I love that. Why? Because an image is that thing that makes visible that which has been invisible. Uh, when I'm at work or when Brianna is at work uh, on the weekends, one of us has the kids and the other one almost invariably wants or desires to know what's happening. Uh, we're at work, we want to know uh, what our kids are doing, and so we'll text each other like, hey, the kids having fun, or what are they doing, you know, tell me about it. And we used to text all that stuff to each other. Oh, this is happening, and here's this detail, and all of that. And uh, somewhere along the way, we stopped texting each other, and we just started sending pictures and videos, because nothing can answer the question that I'm asking about my kids like a moving picture of what they're doing. Abby and Jude are just, they're, they're in a category by themselves. And you can talk about it all you want, but a picture says a thousand words, doesn't it? If that's true, then what Paul seems to be implying is that Jesus is worth a thousand pictures because he is an image that makes the invisible God visible. And he's not just a mock-up copy. He's not just a painting, a little replica of what God might be like. But later in verse 19, Paul says, it's in Jesus that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form. This isn't just a mirror image of God. This is God in the flesh. John chapter one, verse one through four would say that God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Verse 14, excuse me. He'd put, he would leave his humble abode and he would put on flesh and dwell among us. I love how the message translation puts it. It says that he moves into the neighborhood. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus Christ. Your questions about what he loves, what he says, what he does, what he hates and what he adores, what his plans are, what his purpose is, what his hopes are, where he's going, what, what, he, what he's like in a conversation, what he would be like if you were in relationship to him. All of those things can be answered simply by exposing yourself to, what, uh, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, reading about him, experiencing what he is like. Here's my first point. How, if we're answering the question, if God is the solution to our emptiness, how do we access him? First point, everything you need to know about the invisible God is found in Jesus Christ, who is the picture-perfect image of that God and the fullness thereof. Second point, before I give you that second point, I want to read another verse. In verse 15 and 16, or excuse me, in verse 16, it says, for by him, speaking of Jesus again, all things were created, everything Everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything that's visible, everything that's invisible, whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
In other words, Jesus wasn't just created by God as an image of himself. He has been eternal for all of eternity. He is the uncreated being. I love that because in Genesis chapter one, we see the creation of the universe. And it says a few things about God's activity. One of the things that it says is that God the Father actually spoke the universe into existence. He spoke it into existence by his word. And we even see a little bit of of the Holy Spirit's activity in those first chapters where it says that God's spirit is hovering over the waters. See, Christians historically believe in a Trinitarian God. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that would probably beg the question, where was Jesus in all of this? Well, Paul says, Paul seems to say to the Colossians, he was there. He was the instrument by which the Father, empowered by the Spirit, created all things. The entire Trinitarian God, creating out of their own delight and joy and plenteous nature. (laughs) That's why, that's how you exist. God couldn't get enough of his own joy, so he made some people to reflect it and share it. He goes on to say that not only were you created through Christ but you were created for Christ. In other words, Jesus didn't just make you to stick you in a corner so that you wouldn't break his stuff. You are the centerpiece of his creation. You were made entirely for his purpose and for his joy and to be in relationship with him. In fact, some of you might recognize that verse, and if you don't, uh, you might have seen it on the bottom of an in and out cup, but it's John 3.16, right? Sometimes, or you might see it on someone's eyelid at a sports game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in that son would not perish but have what? Eternal life. When I first heard that verse, I used to think eternal life, that sounds like living forever, right? Like quantity of time. And at that point in my life, I was like, living forever in this, you know, in this stage of my life doesn't sound like good news. I don't want to live in this stage of my life forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But that's not, that's not only what Jesus was referring to. He would actually define the eternal kind of life in John 17, verse 3, when he said, this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and you would know his only begotten Son whom he has sent. It's not just quantity of time, it's quality of time. You are meant for an eternal kind of life with the Father through Christ Jesus. This is what you were made for. Second point, everything you need to live is found in right connection to Jesus Christ. So for everyone in this room is suffering from that emptiness, or even at the the least, a sense of disappointment, a sense of racing in a never-ending race towards something you're not sure is actually there, And you're asking, if God is a solution to that emptiness and that disappointment, how can I I access him? What Paul seems to be teaching is that everything you need to know about God can be seen and heard in Jesus Christ, and everything you need to live is found in right connection to Jesus Christ. That's what I think we can pull out of this. In other words, Paul assumes that the main problem with the world The main problem with you and the main problem with me are not the plenty of symptoms that we often point to. Things like terminal illnesses, which is a big problem. 
or death, which is a big problem, or relational conflict, which is a big problem, or injustice, which is a big and real problem. He points beneath those things. He cares about all of those things. He's going to deal with all of those things, as we're going to see. But underneath all of those symptoms is the deeper problem that creation and all of the created order itself is, has a misplaced center and has moved God outside of that center. We live in that state of entropy where things are breaking down. And what Jesus Christ came to do is not just pat us on the back and say, you're doing great. Go team. You're awesome. You're probably like top 5%. All of you, all of you, top 5%. Rather, his version of comfort is to say, you're broken and messed up, but I got good news for you. I'm coming down from my heavenly and royal throne to step into your neighborhood to do something about it. And to do what? Well, if if the problem is that we have been torn from God as the center of our lives, Jesus Christ came to bring God back to the center of all things, including our lives. And this is what he ends with in verse 20. Through Jesus, he came to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, Jesus Christ came to reconcile. I I love that word. It means to make right that which is wrong. Think of every wrong relationship in your life. It could be family. It could be an old friendship that was destroyed. It could be a work relationship. It could be an estranged family member. It could be chaos in your own home. It could be something, uh, it could be a right relationship with yourself. It could be shame and guilt and torment. It could be that sense of radical emptiness and disappointment with a life that you thought was going to be extraordinary that is not because at the end of that race, all you have to account for yourself is yourself. And there's this eternal fire burning inside you for something more than what you can provide for yourself. Maybe that's it. Christ came to reconcile, to make right that tension and that chaos, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up their wounds, to touch the human body, the human psyche, the human soul, the human mind, and the human heart, and to touch human relationships and to bring them back together. But this doesn't just stop on a personal level, it it, it continues into the social level. Matters of injustice between groups of people and powerful groups of people and institutions. Christ, who is Lord and King, came to make those things right. And it doesn't just stop with the social sphere, but also the created order. Everything that has been created from the earth to the stars. In other words, when Romans chapter 8 says that creation itself is groaning, longing to be, let, uh, to be set free from bondage. In other words, that too. Jesus Christ came to set it all free. How does he set it free? By uniting everything into himself, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. And the way that he does it is, frankly, kind of bizarre. And I end with that last, well, I'm not about to end, but I'll end eventually. But I end with this passage where it ends by saying the way that he does it, the way that he brings everything to himself and heals and restores is by making peace by the blood of his cross. 
uh, this, is, this is really interesting because that term there, making peace, was a phrase that was commonly attributed to Roman emperors and generals. They were referred to as peacemakers. Uh, they were the ones who established peace. And the way that they generally tended to establish peace was through military power and strength. You will be peaceful or I will destroy you. You will step into line, or I will silent treatment you. You will behave, or I will leave you. You will behave, or you will pay the price. And on and on and on, and all of the ways that we try to instill a false peace into our relationships by controlling the other person. You know what Jesus Christ, the one who has all control in the universe does? He gives up his power and control and privilege. And he lays his life down for his enemies. Jesus breaks the power of our selfishness and self-worship and self-adulation by giving himself up for us. That's extraordinary. And there's something powerful and moving for the human soul at that moment in your life where you're able to look up at you and to see something truly mind-blowing. You ever felt that before in your life? Uh, there were a couple months ago, for, uh, for those of you, you may remember the big thunderstorms that hit Santa Barbara. You remember that? Uh, if you're from like Kansas or Georgia, you're like, that was like a trickle in the sky, bro. But for us, it was powerful. And I remember when that, that massive uh, thunderstorm hit and my whole family was by the window panes and we were looking out and we saw the sheets of lightning cascading over the sky and what they looked like they were hitting right in the street in front of our house. They were probably more like two miles away, but it seemed so close and it lit up the sky and the thunder shook the entire building, the foundations of the building, the whole house was shaking and rain was pouring sideways and noise was happening and sirens were everywhere and uh, the wind was blowing and things were shaking and my kids were screaming and my immediate tendency was to look at that and to run out into the street and say, I am the most significant thing I have ever known in my life. Right? Wrong. That's not what I did. I hid behind the windows and said, Jude, stay in the house. Because nature, you're scary. Isn't that generally our posture when we see something truly extraordinary? <laughs> Have you ever seen the Grand Canyon or the Swiss Alps, or even just a mountain, like a small mountain? Have you ever looked up at the sky, at the glory of the cosmos, and felt small? Have you ever seen something so glorious and magnificent and extraordinary that you, as a result of seeing it, felt insignificant? And in that moment of insignificance, isn't this weird? Did you feel good about that? Have you ever wondered why it sometimes feels so good to the human heart to know and to feel that you are insignificant in the face of something glorious? Why, when I look up at the sky and I feel so small and tiny, do I feel better about that? I think it's because God put eternity in our hearts and he created us to be worshipers. And anytime we are not in the face of glory, 
but turned inward on ourselves, we find ourselves strangely disappointed. That insignificance comes because that's what you were made for. You were made to look outward at something that is worthy of your attention. And so Paul speaks to souls in Colossae and to souls in Santa Barbara with the antidote, the solution that all of our inwardly twisted perspectives desperately need. When the world is saying, you're great, you can do this, you're all that you need, pat yourself on the back and tell you you can do it again, Paul says, I have a better champion for you. And he drops this hymn in the middle of his introduction in order to turn us from ourself to something truly extraordinary. In other words, Paul is writing this hymn to say that Jesus is extraordinary. That's the wording that he's using. He describes Jesus as preeminent. Preeminent means surpassing all other things. He refers to Jesus as the firstborn of creation and the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn means supreme. So, he's, in other words, he's saying Jesus is the supreme over all the created order, and he's also supreme over recreation, creation and recreation. He refers to him as the head of the church. In other words, there's no one even in the church, not even a, a lead pastor that occupies the status and authority and beauty and splendor of the king of kings who died and gave his life for the, uh, for the church. He himself is its leader. And he goes on to continue to describe Jesus as the central component, the centerpiece, the very center of everything that he himself created in order that we might, for one moment and maybe even a longer one, move from our myopic vision of ourselves to something that could actually cure the human heart and soul. Maybe you're listening to this and you're saying, okay, awesome, Jesus is extraordinary. What's that mean for me? How should that inform my life? And perhaps uh, you can think of it in this way. Not only, are we not only is Jesus described as the image of God, but Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, excuse me, that when God created humanity, he said, let us make man and woman in our image after our likeness. So it's not quite the same. Jesus is the image of God. He is God. We were made in the image of God. We were made to reflect who he is. Jesus is who he is. We reflect who he is when we're in right relationship to him. So what does that mean? Maybe I can explain it via a story that involves Jesus himself. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 20, verse 24. It's just a couple verses there. Uh, as you're turning there, it's uh, Jesus doing his thing, healing the sick, uh, ministering to the poor and teaching. And he runs into a group of Pharisees, Sadducees, and a few others. And it's a group of Jewish, uh, Jewish people on different sides of the political spectrum, Okay. And they're attempting to catch Jesus in a trap, a verbal trap. And the trap is something like this. I'll put it in my own words. Uh, one of those groups were, uh, uh, the Sadducees were in bed with the political powers and authorities at that day. And they're asking Jesus a question about taxes. So it would have benefited them to say, yes, I'll pay taxes. 
Another group were uh, the zealots of that day, the Pharisees, uh, groups that were uh, anti-government. It would have been beneficial for them to hear from Jesus, we resist paying taxes. So they're asking him a question. Who do, we pay, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And either way that he answers this question, from their perspective, he'll be caught. He'll be angering one group of people, and that will tear against his credibility. But Jesus is extraordinary, and he doesn't tend to fall for traps. And as they ask him this question, and I'll just read it uh, in Luke chapter 20, verse 23, they say, teacher, is it lawful, verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not to pay taxes? Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius, coin of that day. And then he asks them this, whose likeness, I want you to underline that either in your Bibles or in your brain, whose likeness and inscription does this denarius have? They responded, Caesar's. He said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. You know why they became silent? You know why this was such a baffling response by an extraordinary person to people trying to trap him? Because of that single word that he pulled out. What likeness, whose likeness and inscription does the coin have? See, even though these guys were on different ends of the political spectrum, all of them were Jewish males. And every one of them would have immediately remembered being the good Jewish students that they were. As soon as Jesus said likeness, the first spot that it turns up, which is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we are told that God created us in his image, in his likeness. You know why this is so powerful? Because the denarius had an image on it as well. A denarius in that day had the image of Caesar himself. It was a piece of propaganda. In fact, underneath that image in Latin would have said this, translated into English, Emperor Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Romans didn't just believe in an emperor who led the country or the world. There was divine worship going on. They believed that he was actually God. And so in a coin that they carried around in their pocket, a piece of propaganda, the Roman Empire was taught and trained and formed to say, this image belongs to Caesar and he is the son of God. And so Jesus asks a question like he always does. Whose image does it have? Well, it has Caesar's image. And his response then is, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God's what is God's. Who's, in other words, whose image does the denarius have and whose image do you have? In fact, some scholars even think that Jesus was being a little bit sarcastic, go figure, as though he were saying, give Caesar what he deserves. You know how much a denarius was worth? 18 cents. Give him 18 cents. Give God everything though. What does it mean to be made in the image of the one who images God perfectly? Image always defines ownership. The coin belongs to Caesar. Who do you belong to? Your rightful owner is God. 
And the call to give God everything is the call uh, of Jesus to follow him as a disciple. The call to, uh, the solution to self-adoration and inward twisting and the toxicity that flows from that is actually to die to yourself and to be renewed in in the image of your creator, as Paul would say in Colossians 6. In other words, it's simply a call to be a disciple of Jesus. If Jesus is the one who reveals God and our life is found in connection to Jesus, the call is as simple as following him for the rest of your life. What does it mean to be a disciple? I love how my friend Jeremy Treat from Reality LA puts it. He says, a disciple is someone who is being with Jesus, is learning from Jesus, and is becoming like Jesus. That's a disciple. Someone who is being with Jesus, someone who is learning from Jesus, and someone who is becoming like Jesus. I think for everybody in this room, anyone who has ever felt the weight of disappointment, the weight of emptiness, like you've been striving for something that you just can't find and you're starting to suspect that it's maybe not there, that maybe the first order of business for you is to start to turn your attention away from yourself to this extraordinary God-man named Jesus Christ and to begin to follow him for the first time. What does it mean to follow him? It means to be with him. It means to learn from him. And it it means to become like him. Which of these is lacking in you? May I suggest, may I invite you today to approach this question not from a place of guilt or shame, but from the same place that you would an incredible thunderstorm with awe and worship. To gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ and to see what you lack and to chase after him. Speaking of worship, uh, worship, worship is sometimes like a fire. Sometimes it needs to be kindled. So I'm going to ask Robert and Colette to come out here as we sing together. And before we sing, I want to offer to you some kindling. I love how 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 puts it, that our transformation Uh, has little to do with our own human ingenuity and resourcefulness, but rather our connection to Christ. It says actually this, uh, with unveiled face, that's my cue, with unveiled face, with uncovered face, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of God in Christ. And as we are beholding Action verb, continual action verb. We are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. The beginning of your transformation starts not with looking at yourself, but looking outside of yourself to Jesus Christ. To be enthralled by him, to be captivated by him, to be captured by him. And through that inner captivatedness of your heart, to then step out in body, mind, soul, and intention and to follow him. As imperfect as we do, by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So do you need to be captured by Jesus? Maybe we can start today by introducing ourselves or reintroducing ourselves to who he is and what the Bible says about him. Let me tell you, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is an old word to describe that he is anointed by God to save. Jesus is the righteous one. 
Jesus is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. The Bible says that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the drink for our thirst. Matthew says that Jesus is the beloved of the Father. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Thessalonians says that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is faithful and Jesus is true. Jesus is a just judge. Jesus is a great high priest. Jesus is the head over the whole church. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means that God is with us. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the door of the sheep. Jesus is the way of the sheep. Jesus is the true vine. It's as if the true vine that he is is leading through the way that he is into the door that he is into the good shepherd that he is. He is all and he is through all. Jesus is the one who came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Jesus is the one mediator between God and men, the one who reconciles the two of them together. Jesus is the one who sets us free, and the one who is set free is free indeed. Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection, and he is the life. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the victorious one. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the immortal one. Jesus dwells in inapproachable light. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. Jesus is the almighty. Jesus is the alpha and omega. Jesus is the first and last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the judge of the living and the dead. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. Jesus is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. That's Jesus. And the author of Hebrews would tell us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He doesn't even lift a finger. Holds every molecule and atom together by his words. Brothers and sisters, if he can hold the universe together with his words, then he can certainly hold your life together too. But that kind of healing and deliverance and joy comes not from looking inwardly to our own resources, but looking outwardly and upwardly to Jesus Christ, the extraordinary one, the champion. And I pray that you would be able to have the space to do that right now. As we sing songs about him, as we respond, we can respond with our bodies. You can hit the carpets and kneel down. I've noticed in my own life that where my body goes, my mind is quick to follow. And so you can use your body. You can kneel if that works for you. You can stand, you can raise your hands, you can close your eyes, you can sit in your seat, you can go off into a dark corner to meditate, whatever works. We also have the sacraments, the bread and the cup, and you can take that bread and dip it into the cup. And Paul is saying these symbolize Christ's body and his blood, and every time we do that, we are proclaiming, not ourselves, but the finished work of Jesus Christ until he comes. And as is every week, we'll have prayer teams to the left and to the right. Maybe you have no 
resources left to even move your eyes towards God. You need a powerful breakthrough of God's spirit to come upon you. Can we pray for you? We'd love to pray for you. But let's respond as God is giving us space. As Paul would say in Colossians chapter three, verse three, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. May we do that and find true healing. You are loved, desperately and eternally loved. In Jesus' name, amen.